Hi, my name is Beth and I'm a psychological wellbeing practitioner from Newcastle. I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to the contributors of the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I've enjoyed reading this so much and loved having an insight into the range of backgrounds and experiences people have prior to applying for the doctorate and it's been really interesting seeing the potential barriers to the application as well and how I can try and work around this. I really started to doubt myself and whether I was good enough to apply for the clinical psychology doctorate but this has really given me the confidence boost that I needed to give it a shot so the biggest thank you ever. If you're looking to become a psychologist Then let this be your guide With this podcast at your side You'll be on your way to being qualified It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast With Dr. Marianne Trent Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. Let's think today about boundary setting. Now, what do we know about boundary setting? What we know is that boundaries help humans to feel safe. Um, That's kind of universally acknowledged as true. And you might notice that when you think about children. Um, So children don't always like being told no. But boundaries, you know, such as bedtime, such as regular meal times, such as knowing the limits of what's tolerated, um, help children feel safe. Um, and, you know, also when you think about society, we generally have a society that's peaceful and that runs well most of the time. Um, because of boundaries. So laws are boundaries. Um, You know, the reason you're able to generally walk down the street and feel like you can do so with with minimal risk um, is because we know there are consequences to people having actions that aren't very nice. Um, So these boundaries are really important. And what we want to be able to do as um, effective clinicians is help the clients that we're working with to feel safe. And so boundaries are really important as well. And of course, um, you know, the people we're working with might not have experienced feeling you know, that appropriate, fair, kind, consistent boundaries have been used. And so this is a really nice opportunity, maybe for the first time in people's lives, to hold boundaries that actually lead people to feel safe and to feel that you are predictable and consistent. Because what we want to be able to do is to have people internalize you and the work they're doing to be able to think you know in my case well what would Marianne say about that if you're predictable and consistent and they like the messages that you have been talking about together then you will become internalized and that is when your work really begins to get really significant ground running um, because it means that Your time is not just limited to, you know, the therapy hour or however much time you've got together. 
but it you know it spans beyond that and that's when the magic happens so let's think a little bit about what boundaries might look like and how to discuss them with clients too so one of the first things that i will say to a client um, is to talk about confidentiality and safeguarding now that is not a very catchy or engaging topic to discuss with somebody and it can of course also feel a little bit scary potentially invasive and it might get red flags up for them if they've been let down or hurt um, by people or services in the past and if people have had um, you know interaction with social services in the past either in their own childhood their own adulthood um, you know or experiences of friends and family having had experiences that were stressful or problematic that might get the hackles up um, and similarly you know same with police and you know other services that you might need to to refer to and so we're going to be doing this sensitively and with the goal of helping the client you know being on their team um, so let's think about how I um, explore and introduce this to clients that I work with. So here's a little bit of my script and you might find it helpful to use this or something similar. OK, so I would say, OK, today we're going to be meeting, you know, for about an hour, about an hour and a half, however long your session is. And we're going to be thinking um, about uh, what might help. Um, meet your needs right now and you might notice as we talk that I'm going to be scribbling down some notes um, I'll often sort of scribble a family tree and some ideas um, and things that you might say that I think um, you know I want to remember um, if you want to know at any point what it is I've written or why I've written it then do let me know um, it is um, just an, an aid for me and it, it, it will be kept um, because it counts as a clinical um, entry. Um, but what I will be doing is I'll be using what I've, what I've scribbled down to um, put together you know, an assessment letter or report um, for you so that we have an idea of you know, not only what the problems you've got um, are at the moment, but what, um, what we think and what, what we've discussed together might be a really good way of helping helping you to meet your needs um, and meet the goals that you've got. If when we're talking, um, something comes up that means that um, I'm a little bit worried um, that you might not be OK or someone that you talk to me about might not be OK. And then it might mean that I need to pass that information on so that we can keep everybody safe. It might mean that I'd need to speak to the police or social services or some other emergency service in order to make sure that we are keeping everybody safe. I know that can feel a little bit scary sometimes, but what happens is if I feel like I need to do that, then I will always try and discuss that with you first. So this should never come as a surprise. The only exception um, to that would be if upon reflection or upon discussion with my team, we think about some sort of risk 
that we hadn't discussed and I'm not able to reach you to discuss that first, then I might need to make that referral um, without having um, spoken to you explicitly about that. Is anything about that confusing or worrying? Um, and are you happy to go ahead with this appointment based on everything that I have said? So you can see that it's it's a friendly tone. Um, it sort of guides people through the process. Um, and, you know, largely people say, yes, that's fine. Um, but, you know, for the reasons that I've outlined um, previously, you know, through to negative experiences um, previously, um, some people do ask for a little bit of more information. And that's OK. You know, we want people to be able to be making an informed choice, you know, to have informed consent. And so that's why I really, you know, give details about, you know, what will happen, um, what it might involve. Um, because what I don't think is useful is if, you know, we just say we might need to pass that on. Um, and then, of course, if something does happen, which invariably in your career it will, if something does happen, that means you then need to make a safeguarding referral or to speak to the police um, or fire service or, you know, ambulance, that um, they might then say, well, I didn't know you meant you were going to speak to children's services. You know, if I'd known that was a risk, then I never would have spoken to you before. And so if that happens, it can lead to a rupture in your relationship, which can feel a little bit tricky to repair and might ultimately lead to the client disengaging from services, disengaging from you and being, you know, trickier to re-engage in future. So this really is a golden opportunity that you've got with clients. And so we want to get it right first time, every time, so that we can really help you and your service and your clients to meet the goals that you've identified. I hope this is useful food for thought so far. Just going to pause for a quick break and I'll be right back with some more skills in boundary setting. The Grief Collective Stories of Life Learning to Heal The Grief Collective Written by people who get how you feel This book is a chance to be supported in I'm really grateful for the Grief Collective book. I've spent the last three years hiding how I feel because we as a society are so messed up about grief it's ridiculous. Here at last there's a book from real people telling it like it is and not shying away from anything. I would recommend that everyone read this. If you're grieving, it might help you to know you're not alone. And if you're not grieving, then it will help you understand those who are. Thank you, Marianne. Stories of life, loss, and learning to heal. 
welcome back. Let's think about boundary setting now within the general clinical work that you do with people. So let's think about, you know, you've already covered the confidentiality and safeguarding aspect, but it would be really useful to lay down the foundations and the boundaries for what to expect and what is tolerated really in terms of your clinical work and in terms of your you know your day-to-day -day work your day-to-day -day sessions with people so in this zoom culture we have due to the pandemic um there can obviously be more of a tendency to be a little bit more relaxed in um, in what people are wearing to sessions and where they have the sessions so generally speaking um, I ask people to be dressed when they speak to me. Obviously, if you're working in a chronic pain service or if you're working with someone who does spend all day in bed, then there might need to be some flexibility for that. But if you are working with somebody, um, you know, who is up and about and is able to freely get from their bedroom and get to their wardrobe and, you know, back to the sofa or their dining chair, wherever they see you, then I think it's reasonable to expect that they not be, you know, just in their dressing gown. So I have certainly started sessions with people where, um, you know, they've been in dressing gowns, perhaps with nothing else underneath. And, you know, for me, that's not OK. And so, um, you know, I will say, oh, let's pause the session here. Um, you know, I'll restart it in in five or ten minutes. I'm just going to give you um, a chance to go and get dressed. Um, OK, so before we start, um, I would have laid down the boundaries that actually showing up ready for therapy or ready for whatever the intervention that you're doing um, is really important. And it's great to be able to, you know, crack on and make a start at the time that we've um, said we're going to start the session. Um, I think about if someone was turning up in person, um, you know, that they'd not be wearing their pyjamas. Um, never once have I done a session in person with someone where they've turned up in their pyjamas. Doesn't mean that you haven't. You know, I know it's really common. Um, people pop to the shops in their pyjamas, but I've never heard about anybody turning up in their pyjamas. And it would certainly lead to an interesting discussion um, with me if they did. Um, turning up on time and also making sure that there's not too many distractions going on. So again, with our Zoom culture, it can be really common that people just kind of think it's all right to have people in the room with them whilst you are doing your work. But it means that um, perhaps people might feel more reluctant to talk about things or that they, um, you know, they might be called to do things at short notice. So if they've got um, children in the room, my children are always asking for drinks and snacks or, you know, watch this, mummy, watch this, do this. Oh, or if there's two children in the room, invariably, he's kicked me in the head. Um, you know, I, I can't run a therapy session in those circumstances. And I certainly wouldn't be able to think about accessing therapy with that um, set of circumstances. It just wouldn't be possible. What we want to be able to do is for your client to be able to really focus on themselves and focus on what it is you're going to be talking about. And so, 
when you're laying those boundaries, it can be really useful to think about having a private space or if they have got young children or people that they need to care for, that they've got somebody in the house as well to be able to meet those needs or perhaps they could go out for an hour to be able to access your session i absolutely have seen people in their car you know using their wi-fi not as they drive but you know perhaps on the drive or on the street near their house so that they are able to just focus on themselves and so that they don't have to worry about being overheard Again, in these remote times, connection difficulties um, can be, you know, a really big consideration. And someone's Wi-Fi might be great one day and just really glitchy the next. And so it might be useful to think about what happens if things, you know, don't run smoothly. So do you have the client's number to be able to call them to have a telephone call if things aren't working? When things have been a bit glitchy, I sometimes found it helpful to turn the audio off on, you know, Attend Anywhere or Zoom or whatever platform you're using to see clients and then to telephone um, and get the audio through um, through the mobile. Um, so if you both turn your microphone off and then just use the audio, it often speeds up um, the process because some aspect of face to face is usually preferable. Um, telephone therapy, of course, gets great results and is better than nothing. But um, some aspect of someone being able to see you, you know, the face that hopefully they're learning to really trust in is really useful. So just have a little bit of an agreement about what happens if um, if connection isn't working. And of course, it's really useful to think about what happens if people don't show up when you're expecting them and vice versa you know <laughs> we are forgetful creatures by nature of being human so what do they do if you know you haven't turned up to an appointment that they were expecting you to turn up to um, so you know my personal approach um, for doing this with clients is that if I'm still hanging about in zoom five minutes after the scheduled start time of a session I will text a client and just say a simple message like hi hope you're okay um, I'm ready and waiting on zoom whenever you're free if they haven't then responded within another five minutes, so 10 minutes after our planned start time, then I will try and give them a ring. Um, and if they don't respond to that, I don't tend to leave voicemails because I find it often needs explicit consent to be able to leave a voicemail for somebody. Um, I will just say um, via another text message, um, it seems like, um, there might be a problem with us getting together um, today. What I will do is I will end our Zoom session for today. But um, if you are available before you know, the scheduled finish time, whatever that might be for your session, then just send me a text or give me a ring um, and we can restart the session and I'll be here for you. Um, so I do it that way because, you know, I think it's compassionate to myself. I don't want to stare at myself for 50 minutes um, you know, there's always useful stuff that I can be doing. If you're a dynamic therapist, you might like to sit and think about the client for 50 minutes. But I'm not um, working predominantly with with dynamic ideas. And so, you know, it also takes time to record 
um, did not attend or was not brought clinical notes as well. And um, my clients will know because I've already um, discussed with them and the terms and conditions will say as much um, that this is the procedure for when um, sessions haven't started. So in services I've worked in before, there has been a policy that if you're not there within 15 minutes, that the session needs to be rescheduled. But I think especially when many of us are working from home or working remotely, um, if someone is expecting that service and needing that service, and especially if they've paid for that service, that I'm going to make myself available, um, even if it's just to say, you know, we've only got five minutes left. I'm really sorry we weren't able to get together, but let's think about when we might next get together. Um, and all of this is in terms and conditions. And I know in NHS services, terms and conditions aren't really something we get people to sign up to, but it can be useful to discuss all of this in person with someone. I hope this has given you really useful ideas for putting theory into practice and for why it is so important. If this would be useful for me to think about in more detail in future, do just let me know. It would be wonderful if you could rate this episode, like it, um, subscribe to the podcast um, and tell anyone about it who you think might find it useful too. I will very much look forward to chatting with you again in our next episode. Until then, take care of you. Bye. If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast at your side, you'll be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast with Dr. Marianne Trent. My name is Diakolola Amujo. I am a recent psychology graduate from Ireland. I am also an aspiring clinical psychologist. Dr. Marion's book, The Clinical Psychologist Collective, has been so helpful to me on this journey to becoming a clinical psychologist. As I plan to continue postgraduate studies in the UK, I found it extremely useful that this book provided in-depth information on the UK DeClinSci application process. I enjoyed reading about the experiences of both qualified and trainee clinical psychologists. The various narratives were my favorite part of the book, as everyone's story was different and it provided amazing insights into the clinical psychology journey. I would definitely recommend this book to anyone interested in psychology and aspires to become a clinical psychologist. 